Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. There are very few people in this era who can build up a stud from scratch, not only do that, but to regularly send out and breed Group 1 winners, both Colts and Phillies, and to do so in a pretty short space of time as well. She was told it couldn't be done, but she did it, and she did it many times over. I'm joined in the Luck on Sunday studio by the owner-breeder Philippa Cooper of Normandy Stud. Philippa, it's great to have you, great to welcome you, and you are renowned for being not only a very successful owner-breeder, but also extremely forthright and with good, strong views on the game. You were told, weren't you, that you couldn't do it, that you shouldn't do it, that you shouldn't even bother trying? Well, it's not so much that I shouldn't do it, but I think it was just the wider racing public was sort of surprised when I started. And I've really got to say that it was Nick, my husband, Mm. who started uh, the racing career. And it really went back to when I first met him because we went out a few times and one of the first things he said to me when we were going out was, you've got to put a bet on the Dickler and the Whitbread. And I said, what's that? What's the Whitbread? What's the Dickler? And he said, oh, it's the most fantastic horse. So I was 18 at the time, and uh, I said to my best friend, we've got to put a bet on the Dickler, and she said the same thing. And we went into a betting shop in Notting Hill, and uh, we put the bet on, and then we went off, and then we came back just after the race had finished. And uh, I said to the people in there, did the Dickler win? And and he said, no, 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 he didn't win. Um, Proud Tarquin won. It was 1974, John Oakesy. And my friend said, oh, my God, it's just ridiculous. We've done our money. Dump him. And I said, no, we can't do that. And as we were walking out, a guy tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, miss, there's a steward's inquiry. And blow me down, there was a steward's inquiry and the places were reversed, which wouldn't happen nowadays. And uh, we won. So, but for the Sandown stewards, <laughs> you wouldn't have married Nicholas Cooper and Normandy Stud wouldn't exist? Totally. So that's how it all started. Yeah. Uh, Amazing and equally amazing, I suppose, and a piece of neat symmetry that 25 years on from the Dickler getting awarded the race in the stewards' room, yes. um, your colours, Nicholas's colours, the, the maroon and, and, and yellow, were winning the Whitbread with, yes. with eulogy. Gosh, you worked that out really quickly, Nick. You worked very well <laughs> on your feet. Yes, it was actually an extraordinary coincidence. So when you look back, well, when I was, you very kindly invited me on the programme and I was looking back over a bit of the racing, it suddenly dawned on me, 25 years. I mean, that's really spooky. How could I possibly have known we were going to win the Whitbread? And, but he knew. The morning of the race, he knew. I was actually making the bed and doing the nurse's corners, and he said, we're going to win the Whitbread. Practice your curtsy. And I said, don't be so ridiculous. Because uh, Majesty the Queen Mother was still presenting the prize. I know. Yeah. I know. 99. Yeah. Happy, happy memories. And happy memories. It was, a, it was a wonderful triumph, and you enjoyed some, some great success over jumps. But... Eulogy was killed when he went back to Sandown that autumn. And I know you found the, the attrition in national hunt racing quite hard to, hard to bear in the end. I can't believe you've got the film there. Um, I didn't want him to race again after the Whitbread. I begged them not to race him. Even though he was only an eight-year-old, eight wasn't he? Nine. It didn't matter. Nine. It didn't matter. I've got a terrible thing in life that when you get something good, it's taken away from you. And that's how my life has been framed, because of different dramatic incidents and tragedies in it. And I didn't want him to race again. I wanted him to go out on a high. Nick didn't understand that. Richard Rowe didn't understand it. And when he went... Well, he didn't go down at the railway fences, because the problem with the Mm. horse, because I knew him so well, was he wouldn't let himself fall. He had such a fear of falling that he would stop himself falling. And as he didn't fall, he broke his leg. It snapped. And... 
I can remember it well. I replay it in my head too many times, but we were watching in the stand and I literally took off my shoes and I ran all the way through to the railway fences through the middle. And of course, they'd shot him by the time I got there. So of course, being Philippa, I had to put myself through the utmost pain. I'm not leaving him here. He's coming back to the stud. We're going to bury him. And it was all dramatic and the JCB digger plug and my colours were buried with him. And I said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. And I said to Nick, if you want to do it, you can carry on doing it. And he did carry on doing it, but with no success. And he still has a few jumpers and he has no success. And I keep saying to him, it finished after him, but he doesn't listen, which is fine. And you did have some wonderful days, that being one of them. And, and I'm supposing finishing third in the champion hurdle being another. But you're best known now for what you've done with, with Normandy Stud. Yes. And it, it, it is a titanic achievement to go from zero to having homebred group one winners in, well, first of all, less than a decade, and then to do it again and again and again and again and again. So how did you apply yourself to it in the first instance? Can I just thank I'm Supposing, because there'd be no Normandy stud without I'm Supposing, because I found the stud because of him and Richard Rowe, because we needed somewhere to put the horse out to grass because he was an entire. Mm. So I found this old ramshackle place, Boxall and Stud. I was a school teacher at the time. And there were these mares and foals, yes. And I said to Nick, this is what I've always wanted to do. And he looked at me and he didn't say anything. And as we walked out, I said, I'm going to buy the place. And that's basically I'm supposing. And I still have I'm supposing, who's now retired at Amory. That's brilliant. Yeah. And how old is he now? I'm supposing, well, he was born in 92, so what is he, 20? He's an old boy. Eight, 20, it's rising 27, yeah. So that, that really started it all? That started the stud, yes, totally. And, and then you're transferring your attentions to not just, not just flat horses, but as you call them, rich men's horses. You wanted to do... <laughs> no. You, you wanted to oh, do them gosh, properly. Oh, gosh, I'd love to say I was so clever. It was just luck um, and, and, and ignorance, because what happened was I bought my first mare... Agnes mm-hmm. from Fiona and Barry, uh, Riley of Woodcote Stud. And that was literally the day I bought the stud. And it was my birthday, which was 2nd August 97. And she was in foal at the time to Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. And subsequently, rolling on a couple of years on, um, I, I'm selling her yearling at the sales. And at the time, she's carrying a utero, Dolores, basically. And Dolores really started me off. And Dolores was the dam of... Duncan, Duncan, Samuel, Samuel, Gretchen, Deirdre, Alexander, and there's a yearling called Leah. And at that point, did you think, I am now a serious commercial breeder, or did you still think this was a hobby? <laughs> I've never been a serious commercial breeder. <laughs> but if you're, you're, you, you've, sold a, you've sold a sales topper for 2.675 oh, million two that. years ago by Dubai, where you yes. are a serious commercial breeder. Well, first of all, that money went completely into the stud because all that happens is it just hemorrhages money, which is why I had to stop. Um, yes, I think what happened originally was, um, going back to the stayers, is mm. that... I started breeding these horses that happened to stay. Now, mm. Dolores herself was a miler. Um, she was probably a, a one-and-a-half-mile horse, but because she was so keen, she was trained by Amanda Perry. She was fourth in the Guineas, wasn't she? Well, yes, and she could nearly have won it. I mean, she was only a length fourth, and she was impeded on the rail by the Aga Khan filly, who hasn't... I've never forgotten. <laughs> it's a good job you forgive. Good job you forgive. No, anyway... Um, 
No, so basically um, Dolores and, and then the stayers. So, so that just happened. And I think it was environmental as well because we were on heavy clay. Mm. And that's basically why people said to me I was never going to make it because we were on such heavy clay. So the horses were having to get through this clay in the winter and it was just <laughs> awful, the joints and everything. And I think this is why they went on soft ground and they stayed. And what's going to be interesting now with half my broodmare band at Coolmore and the other half at uh, Newsels Park Stud is... Maybe they won't be stayers anymore. Maybe they're going to change. So, so maybe the rearing of the horses has as much impact on their requirements as a racehorse as do their, their pedigrees. I feel so. I feel so. And how, how much pedigree research went into the, into the matings? Because what, what was the most amount of broodmares you would, you would have mated in one, in one season at, at your absolute peak? When I started, I had two mares. Mm. And then I built up. Nick bought Fallen Star of the Sales. Um... I had Dolores, who I'd bred in that year, and made perfection out of Made for the Hills, a mare I'd also bored. So I started off very slowly. Uh, so I would just be mating about three. But the irony with Dolores, how she came about was, and I really love to say how clever I was, but I certainly wasn't clever and n didn't really know enough about it. Um, I sent Dolores to Coolmore uh -huh. to be covered by, sorry, Agnes, to Coolmore to be covered by... Kerlian and Christy Grassick rang me up um, a few weeks later in the morning and said, your mare's been, your mare is ready to be covered. And I said, great. He said, the bad news is Kerlian's dropped dead. And I said, oh, I'm so sad. I'm really, really sorry. And he said, don't be so ridiculous. That doesn't matter. Who's going to cover your mare? So I went, oh, my God, I don't know. Well, you've got to make the decision now because she's absolutely ready. So I went... I don't know, what shall I do? And then I suddenly remember Dane Hill, who I didn't know much about, had come back from Japan, and she was covered by Dane Hill. And then I went home and I looked at the books and I suddenly saw, oh, my God, Agnes, she's in the wings, Dane Hill, Danzig. People didn't inbreed in those days. And not I thought, to that, not to that extent. No, not at all, not at all. You didn't do Dane Hill on Sadler's Wells. And so I rang Christy up and I said... We can't, cover, we can't cover her. And he said, no, I'm really sorry, but she's already been covered. So I thought maybe she won't get in full, and she did. And then I was wondering whether I was going to have a two-headed monster the next year, which we didn't, but she was not a very good specimen, Dolores. And you look now to Flea Like a Nabel, who is significantly inbred to Sadler's Wells. I know. And people are now suggesting she goes to Frankel, and she'd maybe be even more inbred to Sadler's Wells. Yes. Uh, you, you didn't sell many colts in the in the 90s and mid 2000s because you said you simply weren't getting good enough return at the sale and then you started racing more of them i wasn't getting any return at the sale i took duncan to the sale and i didn't get one bid on him and you, you've been quite forthright about sales and your lack of enjoyment <laughs> of the auction ring philippa haven't you very much so yes i mean it's been in the papers how i feel about it um Listen, I operate under my own steam. People said to me, look, you're very forthright about your views. And I said, look, um, and they said, you're finished. Nobody's ever going to buy from you again. Just like a few people said, you'll never build up a stud. But people still buy from me. I've sold, I, I took 10 yearlings to the sale in the last couple of weeks, and they're all sold. So why were people saying you're finished? Because you were challenging the orthodoxy of the sales, right? Yes, yeah. And what is it specifically that you don't like? Horses being run up. So uh, somebody artificially bidding on their own horse to, to inflate the price. Yeah. Would you be happy with that if, if they declared it was their own horse and were doing it? If it was transparent and you knew that it was them doing it, would you be OK with that? 
Well, yes. I mean, it's transparency that I believe in. I mean, the thing is, is once it's a reserve, um, and then people may run the horse up to that reserve, as long as you know what the reserve is. I mean, it's really a theatre. It's a show. Mm. When I put the Dubawi through the ring, I literally told everybody what was the reserve wasn't, and there was no running up. So basically, his reserve that year was 650000 They all said, oh, she's not going to sell the horse. She's so rich. She doesn't need to sell the horse, which was absolute nonsense. And when the horse reached 650000 nobody was bidding. And I thought, oh, my God. And I remember I was standing outside the ring because I had another horse going through the ring straight mm. afterwards, so I didn't go in the ring. And I heard a couple people going, mm, that's very disappointing, isn't it? Because nobody was bidding, and 30 seconds went by, and there still wasn't a bid. And John O'Kelly went, come on, everybody, this horse is on the market. Somebody's got to bid on this horse. He's probably the nicest horse in the sale. And then suddenly people came in. Because they realised he was actually for sale at that yes. point, because they thought you'd been protect be protecting him up to a million or two million or whatever. Exactly. So people say to me, well, you can't do that, and look what's happened. And that gavel nearly came down, because people actually didn't think that this was it, this horse was going to be sold. So in a way, if you have a reserve and you get a cup, you know, somebody actually pushing the horse up to the reserve, it's not a terrible thing. It gets the momentum going. But it's when you run the horse beyond the reserve because you feel somebody's going to buy that horse and mm. they've got a, a huge amount of money, that's when it's wrong. Can you, can you have confidence in in breeding racehorses for the next decade, decade and a half? Or does your, is your confidence ebbing away, having, having done what you've done? Well, my confidence is ebbing away because I don't know if I can afford to carry on breeding horses. Which is pretty remarkable, given that, you know, you, you have the means to do it and you have the means to do it at a pretty high level. Well, is it just the economics don't work? The economics don't work. I mean, you say that I have the means to do it, but I mean, do you want to hear the figures? Yeah. Because I'm not upset about telling anybody yeah. the figures. Basically, I've cut down to 15 broodmares, and they're divided between... The majority of them are at Coolmore Stud, where they're enjoying the best life, and I have another five, probably going to be six, at Newsels Park Stud. Um, I then have 11 geldings in retirement. So we have Duncan, Sammy, Caucus, King of Wands, Present Alchemy, Tropical Beat, all of them, I'm supposed, an award... Um, at Lady Harris stud in Amaring. Then I have six broodmares in retirement at Stephen Kemble's Clanville stud. There will be another two joining next year when Fallen Star retires and Florissima. I will be in a stage soon where I have more inactive mares in retirement than I do active mares and likewise uh, geldings. Uh, the economics of it are it costs me 150000 a year to keep Duncan and his pals in great glory and the mares. And it costs me 300000 a year to keep the brood mares. So do the maths. Yeah. Then I have money. training fees on top of it, mm. which are huge. And don't forget the nominations, which are killing. So what happens to me is when you go to the sales... It's so fashionable and polarised that everybody wants Dubawis. Now it's Kingman, Galileo to a degree, but that's mainly Folchers, Lope de Vega, Frankel. What happens if I can't afford these nominations? I'm lucky. I'm so lucky. I sold my horses. 
I literally can pay my bills. In, ter- well, in terms of the, if we're looking at just the economics of the stud, yes. The economics of the stud. I can literally, what I got in the last two weeks, pay my nominations, pay my boarding charges and pay my training fees for the next year. If the following year I can't do that, I can't go to Nick. He's retired now. You know, times have changed. I've got to manage what's going to happen now. Everybody's going mad. Kingman, Frankel, what are they going to put him up to? Dubawi, I hear he's going up. What happens if I can't use their stallions? People don't buy. See, it, this is worrying because you are a significant breeder. It's, it's also worrying to me that you, you no longer have your stud, your beautiful stud in, mm. in Sussex, which, you, which you've let go. Mm. And a lot of these studs in Britain are, are turning into polo places, eventing, whatever, but they're not being used for, for breeding thoroughbred racehorses anymore. Be- I can't believe that my stud didn't go to racing people. And... No stud that's been sold in the last three years has gone to racing breeding people. It's show jumping people, it's llamas. Because where are the breeders? 67% of breeders are losing money. And are you now, this year, do you think going to break even with your, with your stock? I'm going to break even. That means I haven't earned a penny. <laughs> that's fantastic. Most years I lose money. I want to talk to you about those retired racehorses because you, yes. more than anybody, have a massive passion for looking after your horses when yes. they finish, uh, even to the point where people would say you're over-sentimental. Yes. That's fair, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I invest human emotions into my horses totally. And any horse like Duncan, Irish St. Ledger, Samuel, I mean, you know, I had a, that amazing weekend with John Goston where we had... The Prix Foire in Longchamp, which was just my dream because my father used to take me racing in France when I was a little girl. So it couldn't have been better. And then we had Samuel with the Doncaster Cup. Then we had the Irish St. Ledger. I mean, when you have days like that, how can you let these horses go? They've given you their all. The pleasure I get from seeing them. I mean, I went to Lady Harry's place three weeks ago, Graham Mays and his team. They do the best job. I mean... They rode these horses at John Dunlop's stables. Can you imagine? So we, we talk, we've been talking a lot about the welfare of horses. Yes. And how, we, and how we as an industry and a sport present ourselves from a welfare point of view to the, to the wider yes. public. Because times are changing and the sounds yes. are shifting. So what's your position on that? Well, we're talking about welfare in racing. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the whip issue. We're talking about the fatalities at Cheltenham. I think it's terribly sad. I gave up jump racing because mm. of the fatalities. I'm not a great fan of the whip. I don't advocate banning it, but I don't like seeing horses whipped after they've trailed round Aintree after four miles, you know, in a bog. But I'm more concerned. But when these horses are in training, they have five-star treatment. They're given the mm. best care. And i sure... It's terrible if, if you die, and I don't like them being hit, but it's what's happening to them after racing, which is far more worrying. So you think there's a significant problem in terms of the aftercare? It's not a, everyone's applying themselves to their retired racehorses like you are. Well, I'm not saying to people that they, can, that they should apply themselves because I see myself as somebody, as you quite rightly say, who feels very strongly differently about certain things and I would never tell people what to do and they probably can't afford. But what I would like to see done is that the BHA has its powers extended to deal with horses after racing. At the moment it can only deal with horses in racing. Mm. It's what happens 
to these beautiful creatures after racing. I'd like to see every horse have a pension pot. Seriously, just as we have a pension pot. Every owner in the beginning pays maybe a hundred pounds. Maybe it has to be more. I'd like to see the horses in training cell on the eve of it. Sixteen hundred horses are going to be going through next week. These are horses, what I call the shattered dream cell. Yeah. Some horses will go on and do well. I've got two horses in the cell. I don't like it. But there's one that ran last night and ran very well. There's another one going through. I know that they will end up in good homes. Some won't. I would like to see the 5% that Tattersall's and Goff's in their horses in training cell and any other sales company, I would like them to donate that money to the welfare of these racehorses. And by the same token, any trainer who makes an owner sign an agreement whereby he takes 5% of the proceeds of the sale of that horse, waive that, and therefore put that 5% in, that gives you 10%. If you think Tattersall's made $220 million last year in the HIT sales, the horses in training sale, what's 10%? £22 million to go to rehoming centres, paying people, employees, not volunteers who give all their time to this, paid employees to go around these centres, making sure that these horses are being rehabilitated and rehoming. And just one more thing, Nick, while we're talking about it, the ROR. Retraining of racehorses. Absolutely. This is all very fine and good, Nick, but these are for horses that have no injuries, that have no splints, that have no curbs, that are show horses, that look wonderful. They're not for horses who've had strong racing careers. And people can, people who are going to these centres, they want these fantastic horses. They want perfection. But that, that is a showcase, isn't it, for the fact that you can retrain a racehorse. It's not saying they'll all be like this. It's, a, it's essentially a, a shop window for, for the furtherance of a racehorse's life and an alternative yes. career, isn't yes. it? Yes, and this is what we've got to do. It's not just the art, but people are very keen on these ROR race showing, dressage, all these things. It's not just about that. It's about horses going out hacking and their lives. And I, I mean, my horses that are in training at the moment, they go to Jane Allison's place. I mean, she just does the most amazing job for me. She breaks in my horses and, and it's a holiday home for them. Every year we rehome our horses. Every year she finds places for them, which can be done. Even horses who've had injuries, whatever, tendon problems, they're all rehomed. So it can be done, and this is what we need to spend our time doing. Now, you've, you've made some brilliant points about a lot of very serious issues, but I am going to have a bit of fun with you now. <laughs> I was dreading it, this. It's fair, um, it's fair, is it not, to say that, game, that yes. you, you do like to... You like to experiment with a trainer or two. <laughs> or 12. Or 40, or 45. Well, I, did, the, I, had a friend, last... I had a friend of mine, actually, John Needham, who's actually been trying to work it out, and we're not sure if it's you actually You haven't had 30s. a horse in training with him, but you have no. had one with Beckett, outside. Yes. Butler, not outside. <laughs> Chrisford, Kumani, Dunlop, 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 all three. You've got the trifecta of Dunlops up. <laughs> Ellsworth, feature on him coming up after yes. the programme. Fanshawe Fellows. Gosden, Haggis, Hughes, King, Lanigan, Morrison, Amy Murphy, Jeremy Nazido, David O'Mara, Jamie Osborne, Amanda Perrett, Sir Michael Stout, Roger Verry, and Chris Wall and Archie Watson. Now that is a There's that loads is a, more. Uh, my, that's probably only in the last few years. Right. So, what do you want in a trainer? 
communication, but not communication picking up, up, up the phone, communication maybe once a month. Um, but it's not, I know it's funny, <laughs> and there's probably only one on that list that doesn't talk to me. Um, Who's that? I can't say. I actually can't say. Um, but it's a small industry we get on. Why do I change trainers? Okay, why would you move a, your daughter from a school? Um, what's wrong with that? Um, you may not feel that your horse is thriving there. And when I have changed trainers, it's always been for that reason. Mm -hmm. It's always a horse-related reason. It's not a personal reason. And I don't think it's a problem. I've been married to the same man for 43 years. So I, I think, you know, I do, I've managed to sort of sustain that relationship. These are professional relationships. And there are plenty of owners who move their horses. Um, and I don't, and I, it is something that I will carry on doing. And I will certainly carry on doing it this year. Um, it can be situations where you feel a race a trainer's running a horse over the wrong distance. I know my family's really, really well. I had a horse run uh, Friday. Um, you were there. <laughs> At Newbury. I did, you did, <laughs> yes. ran over the wrong distance, and I had said to the trainer all year that I don't breed six furlong horses, and he's a one-and-a-quarter-mile horse, and he came second last. And He's handicapped now, though, isn't he? What, he's just run one. Oh, sorry, sorry, no, OK, he's not. No, he's a baby. Mm. So it was his first run. And the poor jockey came back in. And I was actually in the wrong place because at Newbury, um, they've moved Excuses Corner. Mm. And I was standing... <laughs> William Haggis. Corner. <laughs> well, that's the place I know very well. And William Haggis came up to me because he went, oh, you're in, standing in the wrong place, Philippa. This is for... Um, first, second and third and fourth, you know, if they've moved it. So as I go down there, the jockey's coming back with the trainer and, I, and the jockey came up to me and he said that I, I, I was really pleased with him. He went to me and it was just... And I said, really? And he said, yes, yes, I was really, really pleased with the horse. And I said, did the trainer tell you to say that to me? And the trainer was standing next to him and he, the poor jockey was traumatised that I'd said that to him. And he went, no. And I said, OK, I said... I didn't think he ran very well, and that was it. Have you fired the trainer yet? Um, I, I wouldn't say on air. <laughs> <laughs> but I just oh, feel... Oh, You're making some very going, serious points. Why, we, why are we going through this exercise? You know, I'm paying £25,000 a year for the privilege. I hear you. I hear Seriously. You. I hear you. I know it's funny. I know it's funny, you told but me it's I wasn't, also I, not you, funny. You told me none of us were smiling enough, so I thought I'd... No, and I'm, you Make know, a serious I'm, point I'm with the a smile. first person who will send myself up, and I do think it's funny. Mm, I know. But it's also not funny because it's incredibly expensive. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.